we are the image of God, that is, we are his physical representatives, so that we can rule over creation on his behalf. The Bible is made for this. Like It talks about supernatural entities that are real, that, that aren't imaginary, and I think the church has to wake up to this. Do you think that whenever she came out of the water, the water, that there was a, a, a demon came out of her? It's like, I can understand that because our human nature is to, you know, take the blessings that God gives us and then forget about them tomorrow. There is an intelligence at war against them. And I think what I'm suggesting is that there are still intelligences that we're at war against. I really like what Dr. Michael Heiser said a lot, is that God's, God's desire is to dwell with mankind forever. All of the nations in the world have been assigned a particular overseeing guardian to watch over them. And, but that in particular, the nation of Israel has been designated to be solely God's chosen nation. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. But our enemy has not laid down their arms. Their power is broken. Christ is King, the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods, mighty and awesome. I was at one time the fastest sword driller uh, in the county. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Two Trees Podcast. I am one of your hosts, John Dillon, and I am here with Martin Listener. Hey, all. And Rose Moeller. Hello, guys. And we're excited to be here with you guys today. I am feeling better, and it is freezing cold, so you, my friends, may hear our heater in the background, and I'm not sorry. You're going to have to deal with it. You're just going to have to cope with it. <laughs> if you have to hear a buzzing or I have to freeze to death, I would rather that you heard a buzzing. So that's just how I feel about it. So I if you would like could. to send in meanly worded uh, messages, send them to Martin because he would care more. Them. I can take them. I, I think we could legitimately freeze out here. I well, do. It's, it's like it's yeah. like eight degrees right now. Mm -hmm. Well, outside it is. In here, it's in the 60s. Wow. Which is warm. 62. Yeah. But we're fighting against the frozen north. The winter witch has descended, and I hope Aslan is on his way because it is freezing cold. It's been below zero the last couple days, and it's not fun. I'm just mm -hmm. going to be honest with you. So if any of my friends like have a guest room in Florida or something like that, and you're like, you know what? I need John to be here. Then you call me, and I will do you a favor, and I will leave this frozen land and go and visit you. <laughs> but anyway, so Martin, you're still celebrating Christmas, right? You continue <laughs> on the family traditions of yes. random Christmases. Rose, what have you been up to? Oh, wow, that was quick. Um, I thought Martin was going to yeah, tell us Yeah, you thought it was me talking, Yeah, I thought uh, you were going to tell us about your Christmas, but I guess we're done with that. No one really cares about Martin's <laughs> Not Christmas. Really anymore, it's yeah. January, we're moving on. They're going to care a lot more about that when I tell them that I have been homeschooling. Homeschooling is what I've been doing for like two weeks now, and I'd rather hear about Martin's Christmas than talk about back-to-school stuff. Well, since you're both boring, we'll move on to the content. <laughs> True. And we'll deal with what's going on. So, if Wait, you're, you're in... putting us up against Jesus? I mean, come on. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, he's fair. cooler than what we're doing, for sure. Uh, but if you're enjoying the Two Trees podcast, please, please, please leave us a review, especially if you're listening to us on Apple. 
It helps us an absolute ton. It gets the podcast to places that it wouldn't ordinarily go. It also allows us the opportunity to speak to guests that we wouldn't ordinarily have the ability to talk to. And so we need your support if this is going to continue. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review or share the podcast with a friend. But we're in the middle of talking about adopting an ancient context for the reading of Scripture. Many people view the Bible as kind of a self-help book, that this is a book about discovering something about yourself Mm -hmm. and your culture and what's going on. And the truth of the matter is that this is a book about God and his relationship with mankind. And that's what it is. It's an ancient book. We want to know what did the author of that particular piece of Scripture mean when he wrote it. We want to know what did this mean to the original audience when they read it. And so it's not that I'm uninterested in what does this mean to you, but I'm only a little interested in what does it mean to you. (laughs) I want to know what, what does it mean. I want to understand and to move past the cultural gaps that may exist between my reading of a piece of Scripture and what the author actually meant. So last week we talked about how repeated words and ideas were used to tie a text together. We talked about chiasm. And ancient authors did this in more than just poetry. They didn't have chapter headings or bold font quite yet, and so they used other means to link stories together and characters and events. There are repeated phrases, for instance, in the book of Genesis. There's the repeated word talidot, which is used to break the book into its sections. Repeated words that are unusual or imagery that makes you think definitely of a specific character. For instance, uh, something about a coat of many colors or something like that that would happen later should make you think of Joseph. And the authors were well aware of how to do that. It was part of their culture. Now, Rose, you read a lot. And by that, I mean more than the average bear. Do you (laughs) find that to be a normal thing in modern literature? To have it broken up for you already or to have it just thrown out there willy-nilly and you have to sort out the pieces? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Both of those. Well, actually, I'm going to start with a question. What is that word that you use? Tally-dote? Tally-dote. Tally-ho? Tally-ho, yes. Tally-ho. Is that... (laughs) Is that a little bit like in Psalms when you're coming and it'll say Selah or Selah? Or... Uh, no, not at all. Okay. Um, Talidot uh, means generations, uh, and um, it's used to break the book of Genesis up into its major movements. And who decided to put that word in there? Uh, whoever was putting the book of Genesis together. So they did have some idea of chapter headings, titles, divisions, things yeah, like that. Yeah, they knew that this was a piece of literature. It was art, and art has patterns. Art mm-hmm. has repeated images. And so they were well aware that they could layer these things into their stories. They just did it in a different way than what we're used to today. For instance, if we're reading a book, we're plot-focused. We want to view everything as advancing the plot, whereas ancient peoples didn't really think that way. They they had a very different approach to these things. Well, did they have the... They don't have the privilege we have of having a completed book handed to them. Like you said, like a lot of times books are plot-driven, but... Most books do follow some kind of a pattern. You know, there's like the introduction, like the rising action, climax, denouement, all that, Mm -hmm. you know, and conclusion. And so you're handed a completed story, and that is actually something of a privilege. Whereas this is layered, and it's multi-generational, to say the least. And not every there's going to be a lot of things that don't cross over well. Um, I had a very frustrating conversation with my teenage son recently about... Um, wow. Is there any other kind? I know. I was trying to think of how far back I need to go. But in a nutshell, 
he was saying that it's dumb to have laws that do not complement each other. He said, for instance, how come you can work at a nightclub when you're not 21, but you can't attend a nightclub until you're 21? And I explained to him as best I could that we were not handed every scenario as a completed story when we were building the laws of America. Things unfolded, things happened, and you you made laws as needed, you know, to suit, suit the situation. So you can get a work permit at 14, but you are not going to be allowed to scan a bottle of wine at the grocery for somebody, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. This sort of reminds me of that, you know, there's just things that hadn't happened yet that you didn't then. So then by, but we're handed the completed story all at once. And we're like, well, this doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, they're thousands of years apart, you know? Yeah, And it's more than just the, the time gap, the way that they went about linking things together is different than the way that we would. In American culture, we're a very blunt people. We want things spelled out in black and white in no uncertain terms. This is exactly what the author meant. If you're going to be talking about Adam, you better use the word Adam over and over and over just to make sure everyone remembers what we're talking about. The Hebrew scriptures don't do that. It's much more um, beautiful. It's less of a harsh touch and more of, a, of poetry, more of a feel that goes along with the story. And this was the natural way that people told stories. It wasn't something weird to ancient people. It was their normal life. It's just difficult for us. Good talk. Well, <laughs> okay. I actually, uh, yeah, I had another thought, but sometimes I, I, I don't know when you're ready for a break here. So... If they are more of a storytelling, oral-based tradition, you know, thing, to actually set all that down in writing at some point would be sort of a difficult thing to do. I mean, you have to start somewhere with once upon a time to happily ever after, but where do you sit down and actually start that story? And I know that the Lord inspired them in their writing, so Mm -hmm. they have that gift, but also storytelling is one thing to sit and tell a story and then like to put pen to paper is different, you know? Yeah, that's for sure. And many people seem to operate under the opinion that the biblical authors just sat down, blanked out, and then woke up with a completed piece of scripture in front of them. That's not at all how this, how this unfolded. It took sometimes generations uh, of people working on a document before you have the finished document in front of you. You'll oftentimes see lines that say things like, um, uh, it, it is so until this day. That's a reference that, hey, a little bit of time has passed or different people have added to the book. For instance, Deuteronomy, uh, Moses is dead before the end of the book. And so I don't think Moses wrote the end of that book, but he is the main character of the book. Well, God is the main character, but the main human player there is, is Moses. And so we call it the book of Moses. But there are other ways also that particular characters are linked together with other spiritual ideas. For instance, if you take a look at the prophet Elijah. Elijah has this moment on top of Mount Carmel where he calls down a fire from the Lord and Baal is defeated. And then he is given a death threat by Jezebel and he just collapses into depression. And and he runs, 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 runs and tries to find safety for himself. And he heads to Sinai. He's traveling to the mountain of God And on his way there, he more or less just lays down under a tree and the, he doesn't have any more strength to get up and go. And it says that angels show up and they give him food and they say, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. Now you can read that story all on its own and it makes complete sense. 
You have somebody like Elijah. He's running. He's really going to Mount Sinai. I think this really did happen. But if you're reading this, you should also notice that this has a very similar reading to the last time people were headed to Mount Sinai, Hmm. that the Israelites are moving out of Egypt and things are not under control. They're very worried. They're very depressed. They're grumbling. And the Lord is providing food for them and he meets them on the mountain. And so in the Elijah story, it's inverted. You have food being given to him, and then he arrives at Mount Sinai where God appears in lightning and thunder. In the Moses part of this, the original, if you want to think of it that way, it's the opposite. The Lord is bringing them to this place. Uh, You'll also find other things act as symbols of evil. Just about any time the word Babylon is mentioned, it's going to be bad. Uh, I think of the bricks at Babel. It makes a big deal about telling you what it was built out of. When we find the Israelites in, uh, in Egypt, they're making bricks. And then when God tells the Israelites to build a temple, he's very clear, don't use any bricks. There's a reason, because there's now a meaning attached to this physical thing. What, oh, what, go ahead. what, is, what is wrong with a brick? There's nothing wrong with a brick. I, I know that. So like, if your I, house is made of bricks, yeah. then you're a wise pig, right, from the, yeah. uh, from the children's story. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in the biblical narrative, bricks took on symbolic significance, and they're mentioned so that you don't connect Babel to the temple of God. It's a purpose motif, a purposeful motif that God includes in the text. Now, would you have thought to do that? Probably not. You might think, that's unimportant. I don't think I would have done that. That's okay. They did. There's different personalities. There are different cultures at work here. And so, John, I know I've asked this question before, but when you talk about how they would have interpreted what was going on or how they would have read it and stuff, there's a lot more of this uh, art art style compared to us now, utilitarianism or just plot-driven you've mentioned today. Is it good then for the church of today to go back to how they would have done things? Should the church today be more focused on the art style of literature and and understanding that in their daily lives? Or is that just something we need to know on the back burner so when we read the Bible, it's going to make more sense? Yeah. So I think the nice thing about being a member of the modern day church is we get to do both. We get to understand that we do live in a culture and the way that we communicate isn't unvalid. It's, it's our approach to the Lord. But if we're going to read Scripture, we need to be able to engage in the conversation that's happening. We need to understand what people mean when they use particular phrases and uh, they set things in particular places. And so it's both. I, I personally really like art, and I enjoy it when people are artistic and they're, they're doing things that are subtle and poetic. I really like that. Other people, though, that's not their thing. Every time at church when I'd say, this is, uh, we're going to talk about poetry, like half the church rolls their eyes <laughs> and I hear the zippers of disappointment as their Bible covers, you know, zip up around. They're like, I'm not participating in that. <laughs> but symbolism is a clear means of communication to the ancient world. It may not be as clear today, but it was then. And no one embraced this idea as much as Jesus the themes and motifs from the Old Testament are purposefully referenced to link the past, present, and future to ensure that they were viewed not as many different stories, but as one continuous tale, one continuous event that is God's 
war against the darkness and his reuniting of his creation. The life and the teachings of Jesus are overflowing with quotes and allusions and references, and even in some cases, like reenactments of events from the Old Testament. And that's not an accident. It's on purpose. If you're going to enjoy the fullness of the beauty of Jesus's ministry, you need to know them. Okay, so by reenactment, are you saying something like the Passover? Or well, that's an example of it. The, There's okay. actually quite a few things that happen in the Bible that are almost re- like, why is Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is I that just like a saying. randomness? He was like, ah, it's been long enough. You know, like, I think 40 is good enough. No, it's not a random assignment of time. It connects to the wandering in the wilderness of the children of Israel. It also connects to the flood story. These are purposefully done to show that the same God who is present at the flood or in the wandering of the wilderness is present physically in the person of Jesus Christ. And so do you need to recognize them in order to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior? No. No, you can know that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again and be sorry for your sins and ask him to save you, all without understanding the nuances of the text. But once you're a Christian, you're going to want to know more. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to dig into this text and to know that this is a really deep book. It isn't just an and then, and then, and then. It's very purposefully, artistically created. That's an interesting statement because I was having a, a really deep conversation with uh, some buddies <clears throat> a couple weeks ago about that, and we were talking about the creation story and and really just some off-the-wall types of ideas. And uh, this one guy says, well, what's a big deal? What, what does it matter if that's how God wanted to create it or that's the way it wanted? He's like, don't we just need to know that Jesus is the Savior of our sins? And I said, yeah, but once we get into the next step or the next phase and we're trying to have conversations with others and extend the kingdom out there, you want to know how God created us because then we can go back and try to be the way he created us. And, and so it was interesting. Um, it rolls into what I'm talking with some other buddies that are doing the Daniel Fast with me right now. Uh, is talking about, you know, what are we really supposed to be doing on earth and, and this. And so when you get rid of a bunch of the, the nuances, I forget the, the delicacies is the word that it uses in Daniel. When, when you're not eating the delicacies, you can focus on the meat and stuff. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, and stuff. So that's kind of what we're talking about with that. So this stuff is really deep. And, and is it necessary for your salvation? I don't think so. But is it necessary for you to take the next step and start telling everybody else about Jesus and understanding how you're supposed to be as a human being? I think it is. So um, it is worth the time digging into all this poetry stuff. I think so. Well, well, let's use a a sports uh, analogy here, Martin. You're a fan of the Green Bay Packers, right? You do not need to know any trivia or even who's playing Good to cheer for the Packers. But you'll find people that actually are fans of a particular sports team. They know loads about it. They know more about it than anyone else cares to know. That's because they're interested in it. <laughs> People who are history buffs and, you know, you start talking about a particular time or a place or who are art connoisseurs, you know, mm-hmm. they, they have lots of stuff that's interesting to them. Right. Because they recognize there's more to this topic than just the surface layer. Mm-hmm. And what Jesus has given to us, what the Holy Spirit inspired in the Gospels, isn't just an and-then story. It's a piece mm-hmm. of literature. It's a piece of art. And it's purposefully designed to do something. And one of the things that it's designed to do is to show you that Jesus is the fulfillment. Not, he didn't come to break the law, but to fulfill everything that had been going on in the Old Testament has led to the person of Jesus. And if you remember, 
from our discussion of chiasm, ancient peoples, especially the Hebrews, they sometimes put important things right in the middle rather than at the beginning or at the end. It's not saying that any of this is unimportant, but it makes sense to me that you would find the Gospels in, in mid-flow. It's not the last thing in the book, and it's not the first thing in the book. But you are going to find Jesus goes out of his way to purposefully connect himself to ancient people and stories and places. We're going to start with a couple of these. The next couple of weeks, we're going to examine some. We're going to look at Moses. I hope to look at Elijah, maybe Joseph, if you guys aren't bored by the time I get there. But we're going to start with a very logical beginning. This is episode beginning. like 60 something. If they're not bored by now, they're not going <laughs> to. Oh, bored. there's always somebody new who's <laughs> popped in and they're like, what am I listening to? But we're going to talk about Adam. We're going to talk about the very first human. And I have had my mind enlightened by having read The Paradise King mm -hmm. and thinking of Adam as the Garden King is a really wonderful way. He was a priest in the temple. He was there to serve, to work, and to keep the garden. And if you had to summarize Adam's role in the Genesis story, I think it really can be broken down into five major parts. The first I, lady, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, five major parts, because he's mentioned, or his story is told very quickly at the beginning of the Bible, and then you almost hear nothing about him all after that. Except you so, do. I, I mean, he's there, symbolically. Ah, yeah. Symbolically. Very rarely are they name-dropping, Adam, but right. a lot of times when you're reading, you're supposed to think, Oh, you know who that reminds, that reminds me of? Me of I, that one guy. I think we're talking yeah. about Adam here. Okay. And so we recognize the first one is the person, that he is a creation of God. The second part of his story is that he was driven into the wilderness for rebelling against the will of his king. He chose to define right and wrong for himself. He fails his test between the trees, and it results in death and exile for him and his family. That's the story of Adam's fall in a nutshell. And this connection between Jesus and Adam isn't an accident or simply that something as modern readers have imposed on the text. It's intentionally woven into the telling of the Gospels, and it's part of the choices that Jesus made and part of what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us. And so the very first thing I want to kind of talk about here is that Adam was, to remind you, he was a type of Christ. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So that text is telling us quite a bit about Adam. The results of his actions led to death, and he brought about a kingdom of death. That's what he did. The results of his actions broke everything, and the children that he has have to live in the world that he's influenced, that he's made, and we find a progressive downward spiral to humanity. Adam may have been the best of us, but he fails, and he is unable to bring life to his children. Instead, we find that we are all living in a world that is well-associated and acquainted with death. And so the author here, Paul, he says, Adam is a type of the one who was to come. As far as I know, this is the only time that word type is specifically used. But you're going to find the idea is used a lot. For instance, when Isaac is offered on the mountain and God provides a lamb, you're supposed to sit back and, especially as a New Testament reader, say, that reminds me of Jesus. I think these things are connected or the Passover story, all these things, these are types. 
it's not saying they're imaginary. It's not saying they didn't happen or that they don't have purpose in and of themselves. They do. It's just that they are to point you to something. They're to draw your attention to the one who is to come. You, you mentioned something really quick with Adam <clears throat> here. You say he may have been the best of us. I'm under the understanding that he was the best man. Like he was created the way that God wanted man to be created, right? Yeah. And it's so interesting now, just kind of putting this together as we're talking, is that Adam still failed to produce everlasting life. Mm-hmm. So even the best human that was ever created on earth still struggled with the fact of creating for himself everlasting life without God. And that, that's just really significant to me. I don't know, maybe it's elementary that I haven't put that together yet, but it, we all have this similar problem that we deal with, and that is living eternally. Mm. And we're trying to figure that out and, and what we can, and the more that we try to do by ourselves in doing so, the less we create everlasting life. Yeah, the more we try to fix it, the worse we end up making this. And Adam is a great example of that. He, he's not a dummy. I, we kind of think of him as like this caveman wandering around naked mm-hmm. in a garden trying to figure out what to name animals. And, right. and there's, that's, a, that's a children's telling of this story. It would go well, uh, Martin, in your podcast. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the idea that flows into this is more than that. So Adam is to point you to Jesus. The author of, he, or of, um, of Romans, Paul, he specifically tells you this. Did he make that up, or is that something that we're supposed to have thought of before? And as you read through your Gospels, you're going to find, oh, this is definitely woven into the text. There's not a verse that says, and I'm doing this, be aware of it. Instead, you're just supposed to notice what's going on in the text. So Adam was made by God on purpose and for a purpose to be the image of God, to image God. He was to show all the world what God is like, to rule and to reign, to have dominion. But instead, mankind has, rather than looking like our father, our maker, we look more like our father, the devil. As, as Jesus points out later, he says, listen, you, you're not showing me very well at all. And so there is this intention of a failed mission that Adam was given. How can we hope to image God if the very best of us failed to do that? And it's specifically referenced in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So this is talking about Jesus and his role, his purpose, and what he does. And it says he is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. Jesus would actually tell people to have seen me is to have seen the Father. I am showing you what you are intended to be. Now, we call ourselves human, right? That's what we are as a species. Mm -hmm. We are the descendants of Adam. That's what Adam means. It means mankind. But when we begin to follow Jesus, we're not just human. We call ourselves Christian. We are like Christ. We are not trying to look like Adam. Mm -hmm. We're trying to look like our Savior. And what was he doing? What was he talking about? The Adam story is going to pop up over and over again in the ministry of Jesus. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark. This is the temptation story in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And I want you to remember that Mark is the fastest-paced gospel. There is no wasted space in the book of Mark. 
It is really, really quick. It's all these little fast cameos. And the question you're supposed to ask yourself after each one is, who is this? Who is this person that could do these kind of things? And so you get really abbreviated versions of some of the events. And the temptation has some very strange things that seem to have made the cut when they were describing the event. And it's to point you to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Let's take a look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Go on to verse 14. Uh, This is when Jesus begins his ministry. So, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So when we break this down, I mean, that's just a couple verses to summarize what should, I mean, you could teach a whole podcast or 20 on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, but take a look at the wording that's used and why it does this. It says the spirit did what? Immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Drove him out into the wilderness. When Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, that same wording is used, that God drove them out of the garden and into the wilderness. This is a purposeful nudge in the arm. You're supposed to think, hey, this guy is a restart of what humanity could be. Hmm. It's pointing you to Jesus. It's pointing you, you remember Adam who failed? This guy is going to get it right. And just in case you're not picking up on the Adam thing, (laughs) it goes a little bit more. Keep going. Read verse 13. And he he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Uh, By who? By Satan. Uh, can you remember perhaps anyone else who was specifically tempted by Satan? As a matter of fact, I can only think of one other person. I mean, besides Eve? Are we going to bring her up? <laughs> yeah. uh, Adam and Eve, they're a pair. <laughs> just, they yeah, go just, together. Yeah. Uh, the Bible tells mm-hmm. us Eve was tricked. She was deceived. Adam definitely purposefully chooses to walk willfully into mm-hmm. sin. Mm-hmm. And they're two sides of the same coin. Adam is split and Eve is, is there as well. She's part of humanity. And so we have this instance of the only other person that I can think of who is specifically tempted, unless you count Job, uh, but he doesn't have a conversation with Satan. It's Adam. Mm -hmm. Why does it matter that it's Satan, that he's being tempted? And then there's this weird throwaway line on the end of this verse. Read it again. Read uh, from, start at the word Satan. And he was with the wild animals. That is not necessary to this story. I don't need to know what, what, what wild animals. Well, what is it there for? Well, it's there to tell you he was in the wilderness. I already know he's in the wilderness. Can you think of another story who is famous for having been with the animals? Uh, Daniel? Oh, oh. Well, Daniel would be a good <laughs> one. Adam yeah. names animals. Uh, uh, Adam is, should come to mind. Mm-hmm. And there are angels ministering to him. Now, this story is all there to set the scene for what's about to happen in the next verse. John the Baptist is arrested. It's going to lead to his death. And Jesus comes out of the wilderness, not preaching, well, man, things are bad. Not preaching, we have failed and God is going to judge us. Not preaching, we're going into exile. He's preaching the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn around and believe in the good news. This is the reverse of the Adam story. The Bible is pretty clear that Jesus is an Adam, that Adam is a type 
of Jesus. So there are also instances where the setting of Adam's story come back into play. For instance, when you think of the Garden of Eden, it's more than just a retirement home. It's more than just a tropical paradise. It's a garden. It's a planned garden. And Adam's job is to keep it, to work and to keep it. But the word Eden itself means plenty. It's a place where everything is right. It's a place where the world is not broken by sin and death has no sway. It's a place where mankind can walk in the presence of God. And up to this point, that hasn't happened again until Jesus comes. Hmm. And we find that Jesus begins wandering around, not stationary. He doesn't go to one place and make trees grow. He doesn't go to one mountain and pitch a tent and say, this is now the new tabernacle. He wanders wherever he goes. Eden seems to follow this man. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 34 through 35. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So let's stop a minute there. What was the major criticism that they made against Jesus? You can't be holy. You're having too good a time. You're hanging out with sinners. You're hanging out with sinners. You're always drinking and eating. You're supposed to be fasting, and they're always upset at Jesus' followers, and Jesus more or less tells them, why would my followers fast? I'm right here. Mm-hmm. I don't, they don't need to fast to get my uh, attention or anything. I'm physically present with you right here. Let's eat. There's an abundance that's connected to Jesus' ministry. Mm-hmm. Even when you think about the miracles that Jesus does, they go up on the mountain to a wild place, and all of a sudden, they uh, realize everyone's hungry and we don't have any food. Well, they have a little bit of food. They have seven pieces of food. They have five loaves and two fishes. And they pray over the food, or Jesus does, and all of a sudden, what happens? It's multiplied. There's an abundance. abundance. There's an abundance. It's as though God is not limited by the place. The territorial spirits were perking up their ears at this because he was invading their place. Hmm. The kingdom of God was breaking out into the open in a way that everyone could see this. It wasn't just that he was providing food. He was doing other things as well. There was the, my favorite one uh, is his first one at Cana, where he's like, ah, just bring me some buckets of water, you know, and I'll pray over these and bada boom, bada bing, the best wine you've ever tasted. All this, how, what? That's not a serious miracle. Hmm. Weren't there hungry, thirsty people out there in the world? You know, why is he, why is he at a wedding? Why is it, it's this connection to celebration, to hmm. dancing, to singing? This is the presence of the person of Jesus. Even the, the sick that come into contact with Jesus find themselves whole again. Even people who aren't physically there, Jesus commands and healing travels the distance and it just is what it is. And so if you think that Jesus was just some kind of doctor wandering around trying to find sick people and that was why he was healing, you're missing the point. Jesus, if he wanted to, could have stood up at a hill and said, I heal all the sick people. And all the sick people would have been healed. There's a method to what he's doing. He's pointing the people and he's saying, Eden is with me. If you desire to come back into the Mm -hmm. presence of God, if you desire life and abundant life, it's in me. This reminds me of the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when they go to um, Care Paravel 
and everything's been turned into statues by the White Witch. And they're running around turning them back into, well, not humans, but whatever they were, fawns, satyrs, and things. And Aslan's like jumping around and breathing on him and stuff. Kind of reminds me of that scene a little bit. Yeah, it does me too. Probably the moment in the Narnia Chronicles that closest connects to this is actually in Prince Caspian. When they need Aslan to show up to win the battle and Aslan seems to be running around gathering troops, except his method of gathering troops is a rollicking good time and party that rolls through the hills. And people are attracted to him. They're drawn to him. The Bible isn't telling you that Jesus healed people so that you can come away and say, boy, that's nice. It's doing this to show you that the kingdom of God is at hand. This is how the world was meant to be. And if you draw back into the presence of God, if you follow Christ, if you are loyal to him, you are progressing into this space. You are coming back into the presence of what we long for. We have lost Eden, but it is present only in Christ. And so the miracles point us to this. Uh, let's take a look at... Uh, yeah, this is a good one. Uh, there's a, an emphasis here on Adam's will and Christ's will being contrasted. I know th this is a fast version of this, okay? Really, we ought to do just like a deep dive into one of the Gospels uh, and point all these out, but I'm just cherry-picking some low-hanging fruit here. Uh, this one comes from the book of Luke 22, verses 41 through 42. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, this is interesting. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane on purpose. He made a habit of going to this place to kneel down and to pray amongst the trees. And specifically, the thing that he prays between the trees is, not my will but yours be done. If you had to summarize Adam's sin, it's the opposite. Not your will, but mine be done. Mm -hmm. What you see here with Jesus in the garden is a reference to the other gardener. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeds. This is someone worth building your life around. This is God having come to make us in his image. And the garden motif is woven throughout the Gospels, especially the Passion Week, mm -hmm. on purpose. Jesus could have gone anywhere and done these things. He's specific and he's purposeful about where he goes and why he goes there. And the authors writing this understood what Jesus did. And the readers of these Gospels understood what people were talking about. So when Paul is writing about this in Romans, he's not making it up. He's saying, this is obvious. Adam is a type of Jesus. Just look at what Jesus did and what Jesus said. Not my will, but yours be done. What about the crucifixion itself? Look at John 19, verse uh, 41. 41 says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Why do you need to know that? <clears throat> which part? The garden? Any of it. I mean, do yeah. I need to know? I mean, what else was there in the place of the skull? As a matter <laughs> of fact, most people who are interested in uh, Jerusalem and archaeology, they would love more detail about where exactly the garden or the, the crucifixion mm -hmm. took place. 
Wouldn't have been helpful if it had said, take 21 steps from this place and give it like a little treasure <laughs> or map. Some coordinates Indiana or something. Jones. Yeah, it's not interested in that at all. God could have done that. He purposefully doesn't. Instead, he wants you to know that the place where he laid down his life was in the garden. What was it that Adam was unwilling to do? Hmm. He was unwilling. Die to himself? To die for, to himself. It was about him. He wanted his own will be done. What Christ does is the exact opposite. He says, Father, forgive them, they're morons. They know not what they do. There's this essence of thinking of others rather than the focus of self. And again, the garden is specifically mentioned. Again, I want to point this out. These phrases aren't in there because the author was rambling. They're in there to connect the stories. That's how ancient people did this. It's part of the way they talked and the way that they told stories. And it was something that ancient people were incredibly familiar with. It's just not something that we do a ton of. It's interesting because it just makes me feel like we don't know the stories well enough to be able to link back. Because, you know, anybody in their group of friends has like an inside joke or a reference to something that happened. And so you can just say one word, and then you're laughing because, oh, man, yeah, remember three years ago when you said that phrase, and it right. was the funniest thing in the world? And so we have this in our daily lives all the time, and you go with, like, sports references and stuff. I could say a nickname of a player, and then, boom, you can start rattling off all these stats, and he was a good guy or a bad guy or this or that. So we do this all the time. So it just makes me feel like we just don't know the Bible well enough to get some of these links and some of these, you know, inside jokes that they're trying to make about what happened before. Well, I think you've put your finger on it. We don't know our Bibles. We just don't. And what we do know of it is summaries. Mm -hmm. We don't spend time actually reading the text. We read other people's opinions about the text. Sure. But you're going to be much better served reading the Gospels than you are listening to my podcast. What I just thought of during this podcast is I think that's why a lot of people like Paul's writings is because he's kind of taken all of the stuff that's happened in history and makes it into a, a really unique way of saying it. He's like, he's summarizing it for us even back in, in those days. Oh, for sure. And that's why it's easier to read some of his letters because you're like, oh, yeah, okay, now he made it made sense for us now in, in the real life. Yeah, and Paul's uh, worldview, I mean, he grew up in a Hellenistic Greek world, is closer to ours than someone like Moses or Daniel. And so there's less of a cultural distance here, but there is still a cultural difference. Mm -hmm. So the garden keeps popping up, not on accident, and not just because there was one there, but because the author wants you to see something taking place. It wants you to notice. Let's go to John 19. I think, yeah, a little bit later or earlier in the text. Uh, Let's go to verse 17. And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So we have Jesus carrying a tree, carrying his cross up the mountain. Up, It's not actually like a mountain like Mount Everest, but up, up to the high place where they were crucifying people. And, uh, and all of a sudden, we get a little bit of extra detail. It tells us where his person, where his sacrifice takes place. It takes place between two crosses. What do we know about those crosses? Well, we know one of them. They're eights. They're eights. Yeah, this is the same idea. We say, hey, uh, Jesus was crucified on a tree. That's what we're talking about. There is this connection 
to this ongoing linking of stories that have taken place. Who's hanging on the crosses? It's thieves. But one of them has repented and is on his way to paradise. That's a unique word. And the other is rebellious and has chosen to do what is right in his own eyes. Again, you have two trees, one of them which leads to life and one of them which leads to death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. In between these, we find Jesus. This is different from when Adam was there. When it was Adam, there was Satan tempting him, twisting him. He could have gone and talked to God. He chose not to. As a matter of fact, God seems to have made a habit of wandering in the garden. It's not as though Adam didn't know where God was and couldn't get access to him. It's that he was purposefully choosing one thing or the other. And so when I look to the thief on the cross, I'm immediately reminded of the tree of life, that this thing which seems to have brought death instead brought life everlasting to this man, that Jesus is between the trees. You guys look like you're upset with me. No, I'm not upset. Mm -hmm. I have several thoughts going through my head, uh, kind of undeveloped, so bear with me here. The first one is that he's being crucified between two thieves, and technically that's what Adam and Eve were. (laughs) They took something that did not belong to them. Uh, I had not thought of that one. That's good. That's interesting. Well, and then the other thing is that there's another, um, I think it's in Psalms, where it talks about he's surrounded by the bulls of Bashan Mm -hmm. like at at the crucifixion. So Satan, do you believe Satan was present at the crucifixion? Yeah, I do. I think all the heavy hitters were there. So The heavy hitters, oh dear. Um, So he would have been present in the garden at that particular fall, and then he's present here at the restoration, only he obviously doesn't know what's going on because it says if they would have known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Mm. Just an interesting... I don't, as like I said, not developed. I'm just noticing this. But that's what it's supposed to do. You're supposed, it's, it's like an echo of this previous story. And you're supposed to meditate on it. You're supposed to say, man, how does that help me reread Adam's story? Or when I'm reading Adam's story, what does this help me know about Jesus? It's not saying that this story is about Jesus. It's saying Adam's his own story. Like that really happened. But it's pointing you towards something. There's a richness And in Hebrew poetry, they love to walk around an idea. Even in English poetry, we do this. That's the whole point of poetry, is to rest in something. The Bible uses the phrase uh, to meditate on something. And literally, it's supposed to take you your whole life to think about this, to meditate on it. You're not supposed to sit down one day and figure it out. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be something that brings you joy and wonder and opening up new thoughts and new ideas. So then you read stories like Elijah or Josiah, and you get elements of the same thing. You say, man, that adds a little bit of color, a little bit of depth to what I read over here and in this story and backwards and forwards. And the whole thing is woven together. This is not an and-then story. And then, and then, and then. My son, Patrick, loves to tell and-then stories. They take forever (laughs) to get to the point of what he's trying to tell me. Sometimes they take so long that he doesn't even know what the point of the story was. He's and just neither talking. neither do you. You know, and, I, and then my job is to say, oh, buddy, well, when you remember, let me know. <laughs> and inside my mind, I'm thinking, please, don't tell me. <laughs> if you were, Patrick, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. Um, but he's seven and he's not. Uh, and so this concept, these notes of or hints, types, if you want to think of them that way, are intended to draw you deeper into the story. You're not going to find a verse that says, by the way, this is what I'm doing. Mm. 
it's expected that you as a reader are intelligent enough to pick this up when you notice it. The problem is our culture is that we have no idea to even look for them. But once you're clued in, once you know someone has hidden Easter eggs in the yard, you Mm. go look for them, not Mm. before. And so part of the hope of this podcast isn't to tell you what to think, but to encourage you to go out there and start looking for stuff because there's wonders to be discovered. Now, you're probably not going to discover something that no one's ever thought of before. That's a good thing. Yeah. If you come up with something no one's ever thought of before, put a giant question mark next to it. <laughs> because there have been some amazing Christians thinking about this through the years. John, I'm just thinking of the, the two trees referenced. At, with, at the crucifixion, it's Jesus in between the two thieves. But in the garden, it was Adam in between the, in two, between trees. the two trees. But at the crucifixion, there's a third tree that's involved in there, but there's not a third tree at yeah, the creation I think, story? I think that would be uh, adding to the story. It's, it's not overly literal. Jesus does die on a cross. He is a tree in and of his own right. The Bible tells us that a man uh, who is loving the law of the Lord is like a tree that is planted by the waters. And what is it that comes out of Jesus' side? Blood and water. Blood and water. There, there is this element that's there, but it's not a photograph of the two things. It's to give you hints or... Um, to remind you just of trying this to think it thing. because that's something that God asked Jesus to do or mm-hmm. commanded him to do was to do that the same way he commanded Adam to do something and he failed to is that why there's not the third tree in the, the garden yeah well Adam kind of is, is is being tested between right. the trees the so same is, way Jesus so is, is Jesus yeah it's just that Jesus's test takes place on a tree and has its own element of the story all on its own. And so is it uh, exactly the same? No, Adam wasn't crucified. That's kind of the point, is that Adam didn't do something that Jesus did for you. If Adam had loved his children enough, he wouldn't have willfully walked into sin. He was thinking of himself. Mm-hmm. He was thinking of, of his wife. He was thinking, of, you know, I want that. It's appealing to the eyes. I'm going to reject what God is saying. Jesus has made this abundantly clear. Not my will, but yours. That's purposeful. That's God connecting the stories together. I think that this is, um, oh, it's in Philippians 2. And it's a really, it's one of my favorite passages. I don't know. It's different translations say it differently. But it says that though he was God, he did not consider equality with God as something to cling to, but made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a servant and, you know, humbled himself in obedience, even to death on the cross. Whereas Adam wanted and Eve wanted to be like God, that's what caused, that was the deception, that yeah. that would be a good thing. That's and that exactly they could be right. like God. Whereas he already was God and humbled himself. I had that one in and, my notes and I cut it. Oh. But I'm so glad you brought it up because right, it must be. That's exactly the point. Adam, believe, you will be like God. Why does it mention, I mean, Jesus is God. So why does it, why does it bring this up? Because it's connected to the Adam story. All through the New Testament, even though Adam is not implicitly named, his story is referenced. Even though it doesn't specifically mention Eden, it's referenced. It's part of the narrative as it flows forward. But Adam is specifically mentioned quite a few times in the New Testament. Let's take a look at one of those. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look at two different verses in chapter 15. Starting in 22, for as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, this is part of a a big um, argument that Paul is making, referencing Jesus and Adam. 
But that phrase kind of sums up the difference. Adam brought us to death. Jesus brought us to life. They are opposites of one another. The hope of Adam is Jesus. That's why when God is talking to Adam and Eve, he gives the promise to Eve and he says, listen, someone's going to come and crush the serpent's head. There is hope for you. Mm. And it's not Adam. He's not going to go out there and reform his ways and earn his way back into the garden. It's only through the Messiah. It's only through the coming of God that salvation is going to be possible for the people. Now, this argument goes on, and it's really beautiful, and you should totally spend the rest of the afternoon reading 1 Corinthians 15. But take a look at verse 45. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, it's not trying to focus in on the became. Jesus has always been a life-giving spirit. He is the one who gives life. But when Jesus died on the cross, what did he do? He brought life to the dead, to the extent that even people who were dead in their tombs got up out of their tombs and went walking around. He is the one who brings life. He is this picture of everything that Adam should have been is fulfilled in Jesus. Hmm. This is intentional on the part of the authors to draw you to Jesus. I'm going to close this with two of my favorite references to the garden and to Adam in all of the Gospels, and you're going to find them in John chapter 20. So we're going back to the garden in verse uh, 15 of chapter 20. Jesus said to her, Women, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So I want you to think for a minute. I want you to ask yourself, who is the gardener? Say she was right. She assumed right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she's thinking specifically about a guy who's gardening, keeping this particular Mm -hmm. place. If I asked you to name a Bible character who was a gardener, Adam's got to be shortlist material. He's got to be the guy that you're thinking about. But in the Adam story, when Eve sins, what does she do? Hides herself. She hides. In this story, what does the woman do in the garden? She's seeking. She's seeking mm-hmm. Jesus. Oh. It's, it's this, this reversal of what was broken in Eden seems to be fulfilled here. So, yeah, I don't think that, uh, that this is, uh, you know, trying to say that Jesus was, you know, gardening or that kind of a thing. I mean, he could have been, I suppose. But she looks at him and she doesn't recognize him. She's deceived. But she longs for God. Whereas before, what's, what's changed between Eve sinning in the garden and this woman, Mary, sinning in... How many more sins did this woman have than Eve? I mean, loads more. But she is longing to find Jesus. Hmm. Something has changed between these two places. And it's the death of Jesus. He has paid for our sin. He has taken captivity captive. It's the reversal of the Eden narrative. We find that um, she's looking for Jesus. She's not hiding. She's seeking. The story's going to roll on just a little bit further, and it's going to focus in on a guy called Thomas. Just a few verses later, in verse 27 of the same chapter, let's read 27 through 29. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Mary is in the garden and she sees the risen Lord. But Thomas, the man Thomas, is missing. Why wasn't he waiting? Why wasn't he there longing for the resurrection? Even after Jesus appears to the disciples, Thomas is still in doubt, still in rebellion, and Jesus comes to him, not in winds and in fury, not in an exile from the garden, but he says, put your hand in my side, touch my hands, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas has the exact right phrase, my Lord, my God, my King, my God. Thomas sees Jesus and he believes. Jesus references, he says, you weren't there when I came out of the grave. You believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This is talking about you and me. We weren't there. But I think each and every one of us should recognize that Jesus is our Lord, our King, and our God. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings the God of gods.